Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Poddleters. I hope you're doing well. In this week's episode, I speak to Moya Lothian-McLean about what three things she wishes she had been taught in school namely political philosophy, addiction and achievement myths. We do talk a lot about social media and the way that online discourse often dominates our perception of the world as well. I found this conversation personally very cathartic because I love a lot of the things that Moya writes and the way that she talks about things. And so it's I feel like I'm very rambly in this episode because I quite selfishly was just loving talking to Moya. Um, but I hope that you still find it really enjoyable to listen to. It, it is a lot more of a conversation um, this episode than interview, but I hope that's still enjoyable to listen to. We do also talk about... Um, fitness addiction and dieting so if that is going to be triggering for you I just thought I'd point that that does happen about halfway through the episode um we actually recorded this episode prior to me doing a post on Instagram about having not really worked out and we talk about that in a lot more depth when it comes to kind of like body privilege and um other privileges so if you were following that when that happened online as well then this might add a bit more context for that. But I really hope that you enjoy listening and do make sure to check out Moya's writing on Galdem. And she also is on lots of TV programs at the minute um, doing interviews and stuff. So I'm sure you've seen her around. Anyway, I hope you enjoy listening. And as always, please do rate, review and subscribe. Bye. Hello and welcome to Adulting. Today I'm joined by Moya Lothian McLean. You go, hello. Okay. <laughs> hello, hi. Um, it's nice to have me. It's nice to have me on. Let's start that again. Let's do that again. Sorry, I completely missed that. Don't as long as I am much more professional than normally. I was just like just vibing, just vibing in the corner. Just vibing. Don't yeah, worry. let's do that again. Sorry about okay. that. <laughs> It's quite funny. I'm, I kind of want to leave it in. Hello and welcome to Adulting. <laughs> you <laughs> Let's just go from there. It's fun. I love it. Okay, let's leave it in. Listen, um, thank you so much for having me on. I'm very excited to be here today. Thank you for coming on. I'm super excited to talk to you. Um, I'm loving this weather. I'm sweating now. You were just saying you're getting hot. It's suddenly sunny. The world's looking up a little bit. How are you, how are you feeling at I this moment in time? I can't believe I'm feeling okay. I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little tired from a lot of work, um, but the fact that I can now feel sweat pooling under my arms is a real, <laughs> a positive sign that we're getting close to summer, which is inching there. So that's a good thing. I like to smell bad. <laughs> it is good. I mean, I'm yeah, I've definitely got a Sula going on. Um, but yeah, you've been very busy. Um, I found you through your work and love reading everything that you put out. So I wonder for people who maybe haven't been introduced to you yet or haven't come across you could we get an introduction to Moya who you are what you do a little bit about you of course um I'm a journalist uh I'm currently the politics editor at Gaudem which is a online and print publication which amplifies uh the voices of people of color from marginalized genders which essentially means everyone except 
cis men. Um, so I've, I do that, but on the side, I'm also a freelance journalist working across uh, a range of things. So I'm currently working on a podcast with uh, a company called Broccoli Content, uh, which will be out soon. And it's about British slavery. And that's all I can say. And I also do a lot of like uh, visual work. So I do videos for the likes of like the BBC. Um, and I write articles for anyone who will let me write articles for them. Yeah, so mainly politics-based, but I like to dabble. Amazing. So what was your background? How did you get into the angle of politics? Did you study politics at university? What was your background before getting into this angle of journalism? I did not study politics at university. I did history at university, actually. So um, not that I can remember that much of it, given I went when I was 18 and... Uh, did what every person who went to 18 goes to university does, which is basically mess around for about three years and then pull their shit together at the very last <laughs> minute. Um, so, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't do politics at university, but I, I, I guess I had a vested interest in politics as not as the Westminster sort of centric politics that we think of it as, but as I think it should be, which is you know the sort of rules that govern everyone's lives and the structures that um, d- dictate how we live. So in that sense, I was always interested in the way the world worked and why we did certain things as a collective society or as individuals within that society um, looking out for their own interests. So that was why I got into politics. And it was I almost fell into writing about politics because there is a real dearth of, I think, young politics writers of colour. And that's not because they're not interested. That's because often there's barriers there, which mean that they don't get into it. And I was lucky in the sense that I was, you know, middle class, I'm mixed race. So I was almost able to move in as a bridge between these circles. So people often got me on board and then they realised that I have something to say, but also the I've, I've I've been lucky in the sense that I've come across, I've come, I've come of age at the time when publications like Gaudam exist, who specifically are there to make sure there are those platforms and that we can talk about these things as, you know, people of colour looking at politics in a slightly different way than perhaps the lobby journalists who just want to talk about the budget, which is important, but it's not the entirety of politics. So that's, so I, I, I fell into it almost. I just was writing about the world around me and that is politics. So then I, then I got into the official title of political journalist. And once you're there, then everyone's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, they know about politics. <laughs> so it's sort of like a co-sign operation. So I don't know if I'm looking at this just from my angle of when I've come across you, but for me, it feels like you've really come into your stride with your writing and I see your work being shared everywhere in my corner of the internet. And um, it seems like you've got lots of eyeballs on you. And from looking on the outside, it looked like that happened quite quickly. Like you suddenly were launched into being a voice that people were going, oh, I wonder what Moya's got to say. I remember tw- like sending you a DM on Twitter being like, you're the only person I listen to because you were really balanced. But it's true. Like you would really break things down in a way that I would go, oh, thank you. This makes sense. Like it's not hysterical. It's not like histrionics. It's not kind of going like, oh my God, this is bad. This is good. You would give a really good breakdown. You're very skillful at doing that. And I, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but did you have suddenly a big kind of explosion of eyeballs on you? And how has that been as a writer? Because I know that people who are naturally writers don't always, aren't always comfortable with that level of exposure. How do you feel about it? That's a, actually a really interesting question because it's something me and my therapist have been discussing at length um, <laughs> recently. So it's funny. I've been, I've been writing for years. So I've been, I've been writing since I was at university, since I was, 
I would say 19 when I started out as a music journalist and I wrote on the side and it was paid from the very beginning for me because I was really really lucky and so I wrote for Vice and then I moved I you know I worked as stylist for three years but the 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 explosion thing is simply because I I started working for places like Gaudem and people started following me on social media that's the reason it's like the work I've been doing I haven't been doing exactly the same the whole time because I haven't had the perhaps the platform or the capacity to do the same work, but I've been doing very similar work in little pieces where I could. People just haven't seen it. So now it feels, for example, I followed you on mm-hmm. Instagram for years since I was at since I was at university as well. So it's like it's really interesting to me that now people that I used to follow are like, oh wow, I really like what you're saying. And I'm like, that's that's very that's very funny. It's a strange dynamic. Um and it's it, it I think I think it's given me a real insight into how, you know, social media will push people to the forefront and it's a very like narrow sort of um I don't want to say focus that's not the right word it's like a it's like a channel it's like once someone gets a bit of traction the growth is almost exponential because then more and more people just go to them and um think that they must have something to say because everyone's following them and even if they don't quite understand what they're saying which is Mm. not what I mean about my work it's like even if someone doesn't quite agree they'll still keep following that person because they're like oh but everyone everyone else is on this so they, they must be saying something good which is also why there's a lot of like mediocre <laughs> um, commentators out there in my opinion who have just been pushed up to certain heights because some people are like oh yeah they're good and I'm like what are you talking about they're saying nonsense they're talking shit uh I, I mean, I'm sure there's people who think that about me as well but it, it is very much a case of I've been behind the scenes or even on the on, on the scenes but just not perhaps noticed for literally, literally since 2014 so it's it's not bit it's it's felt like an overnight explosion of eyeballs, but I think it was because I got the I I've been working as the politics editor Gaudem as cover before, but when I officially got the job, that also coincided with a couple of bits more freelance work I'd been doing that I think had got me a bit more attention. Um, more radio shows were starting to get me on because they like like I can talk. That's also a thing. If you can talk, you start getting that traction yeah. as well. Um, so it was a lot of factors came together, and that's why it feels like overnight. It's only been me. And it's it's been it's been a bit stressful because and I'm sure you're very aware of this because as someone who's built a platform and has and is and knows what it's like to suddenly have a lot of people have expectations of you that maybe don't even have any bearing mm-hmm. on who you who you've been and the work you've done. Um because that that you're you're suddenly you're suddenly seen as a voice and you, sort of humanity of you stripped away and it's just like oh they're just this they're a voice they got this to say and it's like I I I'm trying very hard to make sure I'm not distracted from what I actually want to do and I'm not going to just start doing things because I'm offered them and because suddenly it's like oh she's a voice let's get her onto this program or this program and I'm like okay it's it's fine for me to say no to that if that's not something that I would have done previously before. If, if like if I'd been offered they weren't offering but now they are and it's like if I wasn't if I didn't want to do that before there's no reason I should do that now if I don't think it's a subject within my area if I don't think it's something that's part of my like long-term goals I have to you have to keep focused because let's face it you can get lost in the source the clout the clout is the clout the clout mm-hmm. is tempting but the clout is not satisfying so that that's the way I feel about it um but yeah it's been it's been interesting it's it, it's been funny to see and it's also it's also <laughs> It's also stressful because it's something I write about. Like I, I write about how we, um, we push young women onto these pedestals and we push them into being like the voice. And for it to then happen, it's not, I'm not saying it's happened to me to the level it does the people I write about, but for it to happen even a little bit to me, 
is very like, I know exactly what's going on. And so you have to fight tooth and nail to sort of resist being sucked into that. But at the same time, when people push expectations on you, you cannot, once once it's out there, it's like you can't completely change their perception of you. So it's interesting. It's like managing, it's like trying to relinquish control of that image of myself while also accepting that I can still do the things that I always wanted to do. And it doesn't matter if that's not what people expect me to do. Yeah, it's it's definitely really hard managing that that people's perceptions of you because also you don't really you don't want to let people down. You're like it's lovely when people think highly of you. So there's that weird element of like, oh, but this is a compliment, but actually it's so damaging as you say because you end up bending over backwards to keep up this image that people have projected onto you like she's this and that and then it's so flattening and then one day you wake up and you're like, "Oh my god, literally I am just the opinion girl or whatever it is." And you've spent years probably trying to like especially as women I think we spend years trying to figure out who we are all the parts of us that make us us and then suddenly one thing that we say becomes like the timestamp of who we are and people are like great let's go back to that thing that you said and we'll keep you there and mm. it does mean that you, yeah it's difficult because you've got to manage your own expectations and everyone else's while still trying to keep going so I think that it is it is hard being in that position but I do think you're straddling it very well especially because you're not you're in a position where you aren't talking about yourself I think when you're like an influencer or someone you're kind of constantly having to be brought back to talking about you and obviously I want to be talking more about you here but the good thing I guess about journalism is you're given the freedom to explore other people and so you can talk about you in a way that isn't you kind of infer what you think without actually giving stuff away so I think that that's kind of like maybe slightly safer place to be but not not necessarily um but I'm really excited to have you on. And um, as you said, like people do think you're a good talker. And I think you're great. I've listened to you on so many things. I've read so many things. So I was really interested to hear what you would say your three things that you wish you'd been taught in school were. And I'm glad that I did ask because they're great. So the first one that you said kind of ties into what you're talking about right at the beginning, which is political philosophy. Um, I also wish I'd been taught this because as you said again, right at the beginning, I thought politics was party politics that was over there. I was never going to understand it. It was red and blue and like nothing to do with me. And I never realized that all of these small conversations that we're having about like my really entry level feminism conversations or about who we were going to date or what we were going to wear that actually were really political in lots of ways. So, yeah, I'd love to know when you had that, I guess, that political awakening and when you really started to understand and can figure out more a bit about how everything sort of it's all just one melting pot of ideas, I guess. Mm, It's interesting. I think I'm actually going through it now to be honest with you, that political awakening, as it were, it's, it's, it's very funny. So when I talk about political philosophy, it's something that I still am not completely okay with. And I will have to do a lot more education and reading, which is why I wish in school, we've been taught it. And political philosophy specifically is sort of the, um, it's how it's, it's, it's sort of like the theorizing, and I'm sure you know about this, but I'm just explaining it so that it's, um, for the listeners in case they're like what is political philosophy and if there are any political philosophy professors out there who think I'm messing up this explanation please do not tweet me about it um, so <laughs> political philosophy is sort of how to deploy public power to maintain survival and quality of human life so it's it's, it's like it's theorizing about how we should do politics how politics should be like what is our political life like what are the systems we should be living by should we how can we make you know a better life for everyone and it's it's you have your old old guard of like the Plato's and the Aristotle's and all of that and then you got you got the middle grounds of like the um utilitarianism and the Rousseau's uh and then you've got like Marx so these are these are names that you hear and you're like oh okay I know these names 
what are they on about? What are they saying? And when I and I think you know in school when I talk about wanting to know in school I'm, I'm I don't mean that we'd have to learn you know every single nitty gritty bit about uh, what Saint Augustine thought about sin because that that is something that's quite in depth and you know as a teenager you probably it's hard to engage but even the broad topic of learning how to think in that way of learning to think that politics isn't you know a cut and dried because when we talk about like party politics that's political science that's that's how. That's how politics is, you know, sort of um, it's enacted in the, in the public sphere, as it were. But political philosophy, it's like learning to think and imagine about politics and learning to think about a world and what you want that world to look like and what things could be like and what is the best way? Like talking about that, just like it's those conversations that you have at 2 a.m. perhaps with your friends when you've got like glasses of wine in your hand and you're like, but imagine mm. if we had this system in place and, you know, would you want a world where everyone is like, can is a world where everyone is equal actually possible? And it's, it's, it's those kind of conversations about those systems. And I think it's, I think it's, you know, we obviously get taught how to think in a certain manner. We get taught that some things are just part of, the fabric of life we get taught that some things are just this and that's the way they are so with the two-party system for example we get taught that you know you're either left or you're right and that's sort of it and then you get older and you realize that actually within that there's so many more positions you know you could be on the left and you could have yeah. complete different views to someone else on the left and then there's you know you have all the libertarians and all of that and there's there's so many different ways that people think about the world but I, I don't think we're taught in how to imagine them and I, I think right now is you know, I, I guess capitalism is sort of a, is, is political philosophy. So thinking our way out out of the system that we're currently in. I don't know if you read Mark Fisher at all, but he's he's a he's a I guess he's a philosopher. He was an academic. He's a he's a philosopher. He's, a, he's very famous, sort of like I think Marxist tradition philosopher. But he's really accessible. Like for example, his book Capitalist Realism is really popular among young left wingers uh, mm-hmm. like me because when you read it, you're he's talking about, for example. Um, his students in class and being so overstimulated by uh you know uh the the media world and the internet and online around them that they they can't engage in day-to-day life and that's sort of like philosophy of how you engage with life and he says in his book about capitalist realism it's like we can't even think it's easier for he talks about films for example like children of men or or the day after tomorrow and these apocalyptic films and how it's easy for us to imagine the end of the world than it is for us to imagine the end of capitalism. So, you know, you take mm. the bank bailout mm. in 2008 and it was like, the one thing in the bank bailout was we cannot, like the system had failed, but it cannot fail. It will continue. We It will have to continue. So they bailed them all out and they were like, capitalism, even though it had failed and those those messages around um, what capitalism was meant to be, aka this big system that was, it could never fail. It was never going to fail because it was always ongoing. And even though it failed, then then and it had proven that it could fail, there was suddenly this the bailout to, to, because we couldn't imagine this end to capitalism. We can't imagine these alternative systems because we're so deep in it. And it's things like political, political philosophy that allow us to start thinking outside of that and challenge these assumptions. Like at one point in the very near past, well, the 1970s, capital before before the 1980s, capitalism wasn't the given. It was it was just the new system. It was like they had the mm. second gasp of neoliberalism that brought it back in the 80s. And but there was other systems that people had in place. You know, the Soviet Union. I'm not saying it was a great thing, but it's, it's like that was an alternative system. And the fact that those two things exist at the same time is impossible to imagine now um, that there's any alternatives. So it's 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 really interesting. And this political philosophy, I just think that. 
you know, we, you started asking about my political awakening per se. I, I think genuinely it is happening now because it's only now that I'm starting to be able to sit down and think there must be other things than this because what this is that I'm living in is not making me or and so many others happy but we also feel completely helpless and I think that's linked to certain consumptive habits with the internet and things but because I've spent so long online and just engaging in online discourse and I grew up on that it's only now that I'm just so dissatisfied with it that I'm pulling myself away and starting to think about you know, to read outside of that and engage in the act of philosophizing. I think, I think discourse online is, is, it's weird because it comes from the practice of discoursing and having philosophical discussions, but it's almost the online manner of it is so fast and so furious and so many just like snippets. It's almost the um, death of proper philosophizing, which I don't think is the correct word. <laughs> I don't think philosophizing is the word I'm trying to say, but it's, there's almost the death of like that conversation because it's 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 such an individualistic platform. So only only now is it that like I'm actually maybe it's because I have the space as well because I'm now working full time in a job that demands I think about politics and demands I think about it from a perspective that is outside the mainstream per se. And I'm not saying I do that yet, but it's saying you know one of my aims for Galdem my 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 section in Gaudam is very much that I'm like, how can we push these conversations forward? Okay, I know that, you know, we know racism exists. We know it's here. That's me to just get people to write another piece being like, racism is here and it's bad. What? How is that improving, you know, the our audience's understanding of these issues? How is that improving how we think about mm. them? It's not. So how can we think outside of them? How can we report on stories that show, you know, alternative ways of thinking about this or ways to push this forward and ways to ways to sort of open up the discussion and make it so that you know when you read a really a book that sort of gives you an insight and context and knowledge that you haven't had before and you feel so nourished by it we're we're very starved of that nourishment and I think things like political philosophy if I'd learned to think like that from an early age I think I wouldn't have spent so long um dithering about online and engaging conversations that mattered but perhaps were almost a distraction from the action outside such a good answer. As you were saying that, you just reminded me that when I was at uni in my first year and we learned about the concept of ideology, like what ideology is. And they were like, you, it's really, and I think I remember our lecture, I think you used the example of Casper's, like, can you imagine a different version? And we were like, no. And they were like, this is ideology. You're trained to believe that there is no other alternative, that the moment you're living in now is what it's always been like. It's like the current conversation, or the, like more recently, everyone's been talking about abolishing the police or like defunding the police and people are like you can't get rid of the police and you're like of course you can it's all made up like there is a world without the police but you're right actually tapping into that mindset of being able to imagine is really hard and it does take time it's interesting this idea of like there's so much conversation on the internet there's so much discourse so much rhetoric like if I read the word discourse one more time I'm gonna cry but um this pandemic's made us slow down in reality, but if anything, I think it's really even quickened the pace online. I don't know if you'd agree with that. Like if it's kind of worsened our appetite for news and information and... Yeah, I 100% agree with what you just said about the pandemic quickening the pace online. I don't know if you've experienced this. Are you finding that you're trying to, that it's made you perhaps finally think, I'm going to change my habits with the online world and I'm going to move away because this this manner of conversation is not one that serves me anymore? Yeah, well, I've actually had an 
interestingly, you were saying to me before we started talking about how being like an influencer or being online means you always have to be present. And what's happened with me online is I've stopped thinking that I have to. I used to think I had to show up online every day and have something to say. And actually, I'm doing loads of stuff now that so like I'm writing things in my free time. I'm reading, I'm working on stuff that may never go anywhere and that I might never show to anyone because that's better for my long-term career goals, my life, whatever, than kind of what I would do, which is scrambling every day to get something up online, be ready to be viewed by people every single day, which feeds into, you know, it would help me with my career in the short term. And it means that you're kind of doing what you're supposed to be doing, but it's so fundamentally unhelpful for your mental health, for your general education and like acquirement of knowledge. I don't think that like the pace with which people read stuff and then immediately have an opinion on it, like terrifies me. Um, and I know we spoke about that in that Twitter exchange that time when something had happened on Women's Hour and people were having like opinions. And I was thinking, God, that's moved really quickly from kind of like, how have you had the space within a minute to form an opinion? And so, yeah, my attitude towards how I show up online is changing a lot in that I'm watching a lot more and trying to sit back a bit more and take time with things because um, it's turned into like a really weird rat race that I, I don't. I feel I feel like it's a stampede and that you're going to get trampled, basically. And I'm trying to, like, sit back a little bit online. Do you think, do you think that's, the, you know, you're, what you're describing there to me is changing the art of the way you think about things, which is exactly the way I see, you know, being, if I was taught political philosophy from a young age, it's that idea of how we think about things, how we respond to things, how we see the world shaped around us. And I, I wonder... Like what for you, you you say obviously this is this being part of this rat race has done that. Has that had an impact on, you know, in the recent years when you formed your political opinions or you started how have your political opinions changed at all? Have the way that you engage with sort of politics and you're talking about feminism, has that changed? Like because this is all part of the conversation that I'm having about this political philosophy idea, which is, you know, as we now we're having to unlearn the things we're taught and relearn them. And imagine if we were just taught how to think about that at school. So I guess what's happening with me is I'm I went from zero to 100 with my political awakening in terms of like, I was at university, I suddenly learned a lot about politics and inequality and the world and feminism and history. And I was like, wow, I'm so, I listen to the guilty feminist every day. I was like, it's the most amazing thing I've ever heard in my life. And then now I've kind of slowed down and realized that I need to read a fucking lot and be more up to date. And then I can comment in a week, in a month, but just not straight away that's the exposition I'm in it's it's so I think it's really exciting it's really exciting when you realize how much you don't know and that you're not mm. a fully formed person who has every answer and that you know what you can go and sit down and read a book and that's so exciting I don't have to be online and I don't have to you know know every single thing about the way the world works and the way the world should work and I can read different views on that and you know, form my own opinion using critical analysis rather than just looking down the timeline and coming to a consensus, which is, I, I think, something that's so, you know, it doesn't make you happy either that consuming it. Do you know what I find is so interesting? That every conversation I have at the moment, it will always return to this this being online. And I think what we're going to talk about later will also come back to this. But it's because it's such a fundamental part of our lives. And it's like, divesting from that space in a way that's healthy for us because it's you know there are great things about being online and I think when we talk about it we're talking primarily about social media because you know if I spend hours scrolling um 
the encyclopedias online or scrolling like these really interesting articles about the you know politics and political systems that's probably going to be that's a lot more nourishing than sitting on twitter and having the same conversations over and over again in the echo chamber and not being able to and i talked about this the other day not being able to pool that knowledge in a way that forms a collective dialogue rather than just Mm -hmm. like you know it's there one day and it's gone the next day and then someone else is saying it the next day but they can't see the person was saying it in the first place so it's just like an ongoing repetition um and yeah having those discussions with the people offline is so jarring because you realize that you're speaking in a register and an absolutism as you pointed out that is just not reflective of the world around you and that there's a very you know you've got mm. millions of people online but it's still a very small pocket of people and when I go outside in the street and if I talk to one of my neighbors it's like would they would they be speaking the same register I am would they understand what I'm talking about it's like my mum had this conversation with me actually where she said you know, we're very, we're very much nearly on the same page when it comes to politics. She's the person who raised me, so I have similar political views to her. Probably even a bit more left because of, you know, the spaces I've been in, the experiences I've had. Um, and but she, she said to me, "You're always campaigning at me, Moya. You're always campaigning." And instead of having a conversation, I was just campaigning at her, and I was trying to. Uh, and a lot of the stuff is stuff she knows, or she's experienced, or she's she's literally lived through. You know, she she was a she came of age as twenty year old something in the seventies, so she was there through all of the. And it's not it's not mm. to say that you know you know everything just because you've lived it, because I don't think that's true. I think lived experience has to pair with learning and education and actually an analysis. But the fact that I was campaigning about her on topics that she, she you know, she, she'd already seen and done was it just made me annoying <laughs> it just made me really annoying and sound like I knew everything um when I knew very little so it's and once you realize that you don't have to have those absolutes it's so freeing like existing in a space where you know you break through these binaries and it does it does allow you to think more about other binaries and things like that you know I've always been someone who's such you know I thought I thought about the gender binary is not being that absolute thing but it really once you see those links in other spaces and think you can look oh you can move past this sort of binary of thinking it opens up every other thing that's the point it's like none of these things exist in a vacuum they're all part of the interconnected way we live and think about our lives and just breaking down those initial barriers will lead on to other areas that you didn't even imagine it's like thinking of you know you know I've always been like I'm a cis woman but I'm like do I have to be a cis woman just because I don't like, I'm not saying I'm non-binary, but it's like these ideas of thinking mm. about yourself beyond that and seeing like, oh, just because I have tits, that doesn't make me a woman. That makes me, you know, a person mm. with tits. And it's like thinking beyond those binaries in a really exciting way and having those, just any assumptions you've ever made about yourself challenged, but on your terms. So yeah, that's, I just think absolutism is, is it's tiring and it's not, it's not a fun way to live your life in the world. I think this leads quite nicely onto your second thing, which is addictions, because I think that very nature of social media being so heightened, so emotive is what makes it very addictive. And I don't know if that was what you were going to talk about um, with your addictions, but I certainly have realized in this pandemic that I'm addicted to social media for sure. Mm, uh, Absolutely. I was, it was one of the main sort of like, I think my addiction to my smartphone, specifically the social media apps on my smartphone, has probably been one of the most damaging things in my life. But it's also been one of the ones that's the most normalized. And I've had, you know, I've had a fitness addiction, um, exercise addiction, which I I think from seeing your post on social media, you probably can speak to and we can discuss that a bit because it's it's quite common. Um, And, uh, you know, but that one, that one also. And I had an I have another addiction 
or rather something that threatened to become addiction. And I won't say exactly what it was, but it was involving substances. And that's something I'm very much in recovery for in a really positive way. Like I, I would, I'm very clean of it now, but it's something that if I talked about that openly, properly openly, um, which I'm not quite ready to do, but I can talk around it. And I'm very happy to do that. If I properly talked about that openly, there would be a lot of stigma and shame that came with that. And it would, it would reflect on me in a way that talking about my smartphone addiction doesn't. And I can talk about my fitness addiction mm. now because it's, you know, I passed that and I really do believe that talking about that fully, like that's, that's in the past. Well, it always kind of carries with you, but um, that's something that like we can talk about because it's also been normalized to the point to talk about that on social, social media, funnily enough. And it's, it's interesting me comparing the different ways that I feel able to discuss these separate addictions because one of them is involving, you know, substances. It's something that's very shameful. It's something that's seen as a loss of control. One of them is involving my smartphone, which is seen as so normalized because it's just a part of how you function in everyday life and how you engage and how, you know, I build my platform and my brand, as they like to call it, um, and how, you know, you, you interact with the world around you now. And then, you know, your fitness addiction, that's almost something you can talk about because it's like, it's not, it doesn't come from, well, it does, it came from like the pursuit of wanting to have a certain body image, but it's more about control. But because it's, it's you know, trying to look a conventional way almost, that's, it's not that it seems something good, but it seems something far more acceptable. It's understandable. So this, the separations between these three different addictions and the reasons behind it, which all come back to the same thing, which I'll talk about in a minute, but it's just so funny to see the difference and to see the comparison and the contrast in mm. how I feel about them, how people feel about them, and what that tells us about where we're living right now. Congratulations, first of all, on coming out of your addiction with your substance. That's amazing, Tara, and I'm very proud of you. It's so difficult to break a habit, um, especially an addiction to something like that. And this, the second thing I was going to say was, with the fitness addiction, in a very sinister and cynical take... I actually think that fitness addiction is kind of seen as a good thing, especially, maybe not especially with women, but because it's a form of self-flagellation and it's kind of like, it's um, a commitment to being uh, regimented. There's something really sinister about the way that women are lauded. Like a chat, it's like some weird, like chast. There's something in it that I think is the actual addiction, irrespective of the results, the actual um, sacrifice of giving up food, of giving up that pleasure is something that is weirdly celebrated in women, irrespective of how small they are. The actual act of being on a diet in a weird way is celebrated. I know that sounds really fucked up. It definitely does make sense. I think it's almost, I think now the way we look at diets, I would say mostly, if you hear the word diet, I think most people think diet and they, I think there is a bit of shame involved with the act of dieting itself because the way of thinking about it is now like the dieting is the bad thing, but the fitness, the going to the gym, the working mm. out five, six, seven times a day, the act of that, giving up the hour, not going. So when I had my fitness addiction or rather when I was in the throes of it really badly, I was working out, I would say six times a week. I would do it every single evening after a full day at work. I would, you know, it didn't matter if my boyfriend at the time wanted to see me, I couldn't do it. I couldn't go out with my friends until I'd done it. I'd fit in this working out, um, and also I was very disciplined with my, like, that's think discipline again, that word, with my diet at the same time. But I would never mm. be like, I'm dieting. I'd just be like, oh, I'm, 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 you know, I am eating these foods. Like it's, it's, it was, and at the start I gave up like sugar and stuff like that. But then, then I went back to eating 
sorry, I should trigger warning to all this. Um, then I, we can stick it in post edit. We'll stick it in post edit. Um, yeah. Then I went back to eating <laughs> we'll you know, it, what right. you'd call a full healthy diet. But <laughs> then I went back to eating like what I call a full healthy diet. And um, I was still definitely addicted to the fitness element. That would sort of like, as you say, that self-flagellation, that punishment, that work, it was showing this work that I was putting in and the control and discipline of pushing my body and punishing my body in that sense. So I think I think dieting itself has more of shame because you associate it with, you know, like the Atkins diet. It's this very old-fashioned, outdated idea of um, how to punish yourself as a woman. But the fitness, now that's something different. That's something that's, you know, it's, it's this almost like a fresh new way to go about it and it's it's your your what's the word you're toning up your um streamlining your you're pushing yourself in that way dieting if you want to do something that's like seen as acceptable and it's now intermittent fasting because that's like the new age spiritual version mm-hmm. of um getting your getting your getting your body getting your body ad- adhering to the conventional norms as it were um but yeah, so I think I think dieting, I think dieting, you know, if I hear a friend saying they're dieting, I'm like, what are you doing? But if I I I understand more when a friend is like, oh, I'm going to the gym all this time, X, Y, and Z, I've got this very detailed plan, et cetera. And then I'm like, oh yeah, you know, there's that subconscious thing which is like, oh yeah, they're bettering themselves in some way. And it's like, I don't know if they are. I really don't know if they are. And it's it's obviously fitness no. is a wonderful thing, but the addiction to it has so much more bound up in it. I agree with you. Obviously, if my friend says they're dieting, I'm like, you don't need to go on a diet. And I, my, my immediate response is, again, a prepackaged social media one that I've like almost said so many times over the years that it just comes out because diet is such a dirty word now in the reverse. And so that happens. But with the fitness that's happened to me in the pandemic is like, I've basically not worked out this year. I've just been going on walks. And I don't think ever in the last six or seven years that I've ever not exercised. And it's kind of been, it's semi-conscious in that like, I, I hate doing home workouts, but it's also just, I feel so emotionally drained from the pandemic that I was like, I don't have the physical energy to do something really strenuous. So I'm just going to go on walks. And I feel nothing about it. I don't care that I'm not exercising, but sometimes I think about, oh my God, me four years ago, a bit like you were saying, like wouldn't have seen your boyfriend. I would have been panicking. That I hadn't exercised. I would have been finding ways to exercise. I would have been walking like a million steps a day. This this pandemic had it happened to me when I was in the throes of my like disordered eating and fitness um, like uh, addiction. I don't know. I I would have found it so difficult. I would not have been able to deal with the fact that I couldn't go to the gym. Whereas this time around, I'm like, oh well, I'll just go for a walk. Like it's amazing how my mindset shifted. But when did your when did you break off that addiction and like? Do you think, I saw that you said something about this on Instagram the other day, and it is interesting. There's been like a wave of our generation of women getting fitness addictions, kind of overcoming them, and now being like very confessional about that fact. Were you in t- in time with that kind of wave of that happening? Yeah, 100%. As I said, I, I, I as a, as a, like a young adult, I guess, teenager, I, f- I followed your Instagram from the start. Like I was in the fitness bubble community I followed I followed everyone I was on the Kayla program but I hated it so I quit that (laughs) and um sorry Kayla and yeah so I was I was I'm very much of age I'm I'm 26 this year in fact in two a week in 26 in a week so I'm, I'm very much of that era I guess that's grown up 
coming of this particular age online and you know at university just when this sort of like the amateur fitness uh the amateur fitness person to influence a pipeline happened because I think a lot of young women my age who became fitness influencers I don't know if this was your journey too when they did that they started out as um you know just people part of the fitness communities online that started building up organically and they were usually at universities so they had much more spare time to engage in that fitness world and work out and post those workouts and it became like a side hobby and then suddenly they found themselves with these thousands of followers who were like every single move it was like oh wow you're you know this is this is this is now my career I guess this is who I am and it that becomes your life so I was I was on the other side of that I didn't want to be a fitness influencer but I was very much following those journeys and for me I only I guess I only started coming out and I wouldn't say I'm still out of it I work out three times a week I only I do one 20 minute run and then I do two full workouts like at, with rest days so it's much better now but um I only start but I still get I still get a, probably a little panicky if I didn't do like one of if I only did one of those things I'd probably feel a little off um which is still something I have to work on and it's it's very hard it's really hard because it is part of the way I, I control mm. my life um and that is something I constantly struggle with but the only the reason when I started I guess tackling the fitness addiction was probably it was probably when I met my current boyfriend um because he 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 had he had knowledge of it. Let's just say he had knowledge of these kind of things. And he was very much like, in a very loving, kind way, how, how funny, he just tried to call me. He can feel his ears burning. Um, in a very <laughs> loving and kind way. He's like, are you talking about me on a podcast? Um, in a really, really, like, yeah, this caring, loving way, he recognised that it wasn't normal that I was giving up so much time and energy to get these workouts in and that I panicked and became very distressed and I would pull up my I pull up my constantly just always pull up my jumper and look at my stomach in the mirror when I was passing it by without thinking mm. it was this unconscious thing I always would do and I still do it sometimes um and he was like I think you've got a bit of an issue here and do you want to talk about it a bit more and I knew I I knew deep down I had an issue and for a while I, I maintained it and then slowly with sort of his help and encouragement I, I tested out taking down my workouts to you know four a week or, or or only doing like a little bit and then I took them down to three big workouts a week and then I started only doing two workouts a week and it's only this year I've started running again and that's because um it's only 20 minutes it's not it's not a hard run um but I started running because I've never run before in my life and I was like I want to do something that's just a bit different and I hate running and I think it's good for me to actually challenge myself a little bit. So I start I started doing a, a run at the start mm. of this year just to prove I could. Um and now I do it just on Mondays. Uh but if I if I don't feel up to it, I won't. But it's 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 that idea of like slowly having to reduce it down. And as you said with your experience this year, you know, realizing the world's not gonna fall in you're not going to change that much. And even if mm. you did, it wouldn't be a bad thing, although that would be something hard to cope with. But the sky is not going to fall in and it will keep going and you will still feel okay about yourself if you give these things up. But just even taking that first step needed sort of him to hold my hand in a very big way to make me feel okay to do that. And that's why having people around you that love you is so important for dealing with addictions, as it were. And he's also someone who, he's the person who also helped me with the substance um, as well. So I, I, I wouldn't say I owe him because part, I don't feel like you owe your partners, but he's a very big light in my life. And he's helped, he helped me realize a lot of things. And he, he got me to also 
uh, he he's also helped me finance my therapy. So he's literally this man is literally uh, recovery central, I'd say. Um, but yeah, so it's it's that kind of thing. It's like you, I I do think that you can't deal with addictions totally on your own, and that's that's really okay. But we talk because we live in such an individualized world. Um, we think that it's all like if you can't deal with this thing on your own, you can't sort it out on your own. You you're not able to do that. It's it's almost like a failure on yourself, and then you fall further into that shame spiral, which pushes you further down the route of you know these these destructive habits, and it's like. I only, all these things about addictions, all the roots of my addictions, they come from things that I've explored in therapy, which is certain ways I think about the world, certain guards, my protectiveness, my control, my fear of rejection, certain certain things and unhappiness. And understanding what I was searching for in these addictions, you know, my smartphone addiction, where I'm trying to fill this void, I'm trying to like constantly be stimulated, I'm constantly trying to find connection, but I'm not going to find it through my social media apps in the way I want. So I'm having to, I'm now doing this thing where I have to build up my, my, I have loads of wonderful, wonderful friends, but it's like for a long time, I've, I've very much sort of pulled back and relied on um social media to connect with these people even if I could walk down the road and see them and part of like the thing I'm doing in therapy is I'm I'm getting over my fear of one-to-one not just group one-to-one interactions so one-to-one interactions and really trying to go and see them or if I can't see them zoom them and spend time with people one-on-one um so that I get over that fear of like not being enough not bringing enough to the conversation not feeling like the reason that I've always been in groups and the reason that I've often, you know, that, that the substance problems is because I didn't feel like I had anything to offer myself, even though that, you know, people be like, that's not true. You're great. You're full of life, all of this. And it's like, that's fine. That's It didn't come from a rational place. It came from a very irrational place. It came from a lot of like issues that I've had. You know, my father left when I was very young. So I had a lot of like rejection issues around that. It's very run of the mill stuff, but it still was there. And these fears of like building these one-to-one connections with my friends and letting them get close enough to me, IRL, um, that, you know, you can be hurt, you can rely on someone or depend on someone. That's where a lot of this stuff's coming from and like not feeling like you're enough. So like having to, you know, bring substances or bring, you know, this fun version of yourself and all of that, that's another thing. And then it's, you know, this exercise addiction and wanting to be, look, at least I'd look perfect even if I wasn't sparkling company. Mm. So it's, and going to therapy and having my partner, you know, allow that but also gently say to me are you sure you're okay about like this thing are you sure this thing is like you don't seem happy you just don't seem happy those those are the biggest factors in sort of tackling my addiction so I'd say it's that support network and it's also having access to things that can help you you know he he allowed me access to therapy which I'd never been able to do before because I hadn't had the disposable income to do it and that and my mum also helped pay for a bit of it but he's primarily been helping me with it and that itself is like a major privilege but also be aware that if you don't have access to these things that's like it's not your fault if you cannot deal with it on your own that was a very long answer (laughs) oh my god no when you were talking about your boyfriend it genuinely made me well up one because it's just so lovely to hear when people are in really loving supportive relationships like I just and also because I love my boyfriend Liz it made me want to cry it's so stupid but it was just so sweet I just love him and it's it's so nice to have that support and it's so important and there's so many things you said that resonated with me I mean I'm in therapy as well now which is I have been since I think was it last year November last year maybe around then the most revolutionary thing I've ever done I agree with you it's like oh my god same that was exactly the same (laughs) really that's so funny um yeah it's just absolutely incredible and and the things I've learned about myself like where these insecurities have come from and like where I don't know it's just it's just taking control and like learning all these things about boundaries anyway it's with the phone thing again it's the same with me the more I've been in therapy and I've unearthed um maybe 
issues that I didn't realize that had come from my childhood or trauma or things like that, the less I've become dependent on validation from strangers or like external validation online. It's been a really interesting seesaw effect watching how if you mend little things deeper down, some of these what seem like surface level problems do actually start to dissipate. Everything's kind of interconnected, I guess. I 100% agree. And also I welled up talking about my boyfriend a bit. So um, it is it is really funny when I hear about other people's relationships like yours and you're like, I love them so much. I also get very emotional because I'm like, it's just so nice. <laughs> um, it's just so, it's just it's just nice to have someone that shows up for you and cares. And I don't want people to listen to the podcast and be like, guys, shut the fuck up because stop talking about your boyfriends. But it 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 does, it changes a lot. And this can be a friend relationship too. I also want people to note that like this support and love you can find that in your friends and they, you know, you just, it's letting that person in, in a way that they can, they can do that for you. And that is, that's more than okay. And I think a lot of the time online as well, we pathologize relationships. Uh, so they have to be like this transactional thing of like, you know, who's doing the emotional labor, who's doing what? And it's like, that's not what they are. Relationships are how, you know, it's, it's just about like letting someone love you and be there for you. And, be there when you need someone and sometimes you don't recognize that you need someone I, I don't know if you feel similarly but it's like a lot of my life I've been very much like I'm so independent because of the things that I'm now like looking at in therapies I'm so independent I could do this all on my own um and I, even if I do need someone I can't need someone because if I start relying on someone then you know I I, I everything else will just crumble because then they might go away when I need them and that's not that's just not how it has to work and that you don't have to be like alone in that. And it's, as you say this, you know, we're going to talk about therapy now. And I I do want to say that therapy is not the be all and end all for everyone. It doesn't solve every single thing. And it is obviously a massive privilege to be able to get into it and afford it. Um, I would maybe in the show notes, we could put a couple of groups that are providing, you know, access to therapy for marginalized mm-hmm. people who don't have the money. That would be really helpful because even though it's not the be all and end all, just having that space to talk is so important but it, it it's I, I it's hard because like the things I'm going to talk about are things that like without therapy I wouldn't be able to discuss them and without that therapy you know without mm-hmm. that access to this this thing that is like a real privilege um I I you know and I don't want people to think that they can't do, that they can do it on their own because that's also again that narrative I was talking about like if you you know you think that you should be able to do this all on your own and you think that you should be able to like re, re, reproduce the structures of a therapeutic environment where you can sit and talk and have that and have those realizations on your own because honestly you can't and that is because our society is a very skewed unequal place and that is the thing it's like we have made up all these sort of struct we've made up all these like myths about what you should be able to do and access individually because we have made such an unequal society where people can't access that all at once. And we've made a scarcity myth, which is that sort of idea where, you know, there's a shortage of things. So we'll come up with solutions for it, such as, you know, talk about freelancing a lot online, like rate of freelancers massive gone up because there's no staff jobs in journalism. That's just one of those things. It's like the scarcity thing. And it doesn't have to be this way. That's again, going back to my political philosophy point, we could, ha- we could have another world where you do have this mental health support and you do have these kind of things like not just therapy, but the other things that, you know, you know, the other ways of dealing with mental health that people can access. And I think it is okay to say right now, there is not enough of that. And it doesn't matter how many times we say it's time to talk on social media. That's not going to be the Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But anyway, back to, to the, back going back to the addiction stuff, it is, it is all interconnected. It is very much like, you know, like this. I wrote this essay on smartphone addiction the other day because I was finally able to sit down and be like, I, as you said, you, I don't get the same dopamine blast from having a thousands of strangers want to like follow me online because it doesn't mean as much anymore it's not where my values lie because that I've realized that's not where I get that satisfaction and that's not like something that I need in my life to make me happy because it just makes me feel a bit more empty and it's like the things that make me happy it's like hanging out with people that I love it's talking to people that I like it's having interesting conversations like these where I really can chew over stuff and be like it's okay we don't have all the answers and you know going outside and painting my electric box and planting seeds and being slow it's like you said it's just being a bit slower Mm. my dream is to you know move back to the countryside one day and live in the little cottage that I grew up in and just you know get off the rat race as you say but it's like that dream only exists because we're so overwhelmed by this stream of social media and there's not that balance yet and maybe as I get older I will be able to strike that balance in a way that makes it sustainable but right now it's like I just want to I just want to be able to breathe and figure out who I am now compared to who I was five years ago and what that means. And having the space to do that is an enormous privilege. And it's only come with um, my the support of like my partner, my friends, and you know having a little bit extra money to do this stuff with. And that's the truth of it. There's um, I'm going to share as well in the show notes, but a, a girl DM a, a woman DM me about how you can actually apply for like free therapy through the NHS and they're actually it's a lot quieter than people think it is because everyone presumes it's so busy it's actually slightly easier to get a referral so I'm going to put the link to that because I shared that before on Instagram um but I wanted to go back to what you're saying about fitness quickly because when you said about how where your worth lies and you realize it's not online it just made me think about how it's a really sad kind of self-fulfilling prophecy this one because what happened with me was all my life, I'd had quite disordered eating and always wanted to be, I'd never been a really skinny girl. So I, all I wanted to be was super lean and skinny. I thought it would make me really happy. And so you kind of, you do, you, I really had my eyes on the prize and I was like, I'm going to get so shredded and everyone's going to love me then. And then you get really lean in the way I did that was online. And so then bec- my values did become inverse. Like the, I had, it's like that thing of like, whatever you water grows. So I grew a community of people online. I was so obsessed with being lean. And then I realized like slam dunk, wow, you know, having abs and being like 16% body fat has not made me happy yet. It's not made my friendships any better. My grades aren't any better. Like nothing has improved. I've just got loads of people following me online. And it's sad because that past kind of, is set out for us. It's like predestined. It's so many young women and girls are, sidetracked by this because that's what we're taught we're indoctrinated to believe so irrespective of where you come from or what your background is it's like we're so set up for a fall and it's almost as though and again you kind of outline this in your I can't think it was on your Instagram story but it's almost like we have to go through as a rite of passage all of this rigmarole and like trauma and stress and only some of us make it out to the other side where we're able to as you say leisurely kind of slowly do this critical thinking and questioning like, am I cisgendered? Am I straight? Am I happy being in the body that I'm in? Do I need to 
ascribe to certain beliefs? Am I interested in whatever it is? Not everyone makes it out because it's such a strong pull. It's such a magnetic force, basically, the capitalist mindset dream that keeps us all, because capitalism and dieting, I guess, are like totally entrenched. Sorry, I've gone so off topic, but I'm just, I just, it was just making me think how obvious it all is. It's all so deliberate. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I mean, this is not off topic at all. It's all part of the same topic. That's that's the entire point. You know, we're getting back to the political philosophy mixed in with, you know, this, this, we live in this structure and it's like we have agency within it, but only enough that allows us to keep participating within it. It's like we have this, I do think we have like a bit of like obviously free will. And I do think there's, but as you say, it's like we are on this path, which is set out and that is that magnetism. It's that, you know, pull again and again. It's like, it's like that sketch in, um, Arrested Development, where I don't know if you've seen it, Tobias and Lindsay are talking in that, and they're like, we should try an open marriage. And Lindsay's like, does it work? And Tobias goes, mm. no, it never does. But And people always fool themselves into thinking that, but it might just work for us. And it, it's that idea of like, we always think it might slightly be different. And maybe maybe if we just try it, it, it will be different for us. But it's not. It's just, again, these myths of like capitalism that want us to become these consumers, these commod- like commodifying. And now we know how to monetize these journeys. So, you know, you're going on, you, we go on this fitness journey. And even without thinking about it, it becomes part of our own mythology, um, I read a really interesting character, a really interesting essay this week on like main character syndrome and how we all want to be like the main character in our own lives, um, and how social media has really exacerbated that. But it's, and I think what you're saying about who makes out to the other side is really interesting because we, I think, look, like take us, both of us, we sort of we're com- kind of coming out there. We have this space to make it out, and I think you could probably argue the reason we have that mm. space is partly because of the privileges we enjoy, you know. Um, I'm definitely from middle class mm. background. Like, I think you're from middle class background too. Uh, we both have like these very loving support networks. We both fit in convention. We still are very conventionally like sized. We are like conventional beauty norms. Like mm-hmm. that is just who we are as people, and we have been afforded the grace to have that space. We've been, you know, people come to us and they want to hear about almost these issues we've had and the way we've worked through them. Whereas on people who don't fit within these parameters, there's much less grace for them and they're not really afforded that recovery space. And also if they do go through that recovery, no one wants to hear about it because it's almost seen as failure for them because they fail to still fit Mm. within these conventional norms. Whereas we've gone through these things and it's like, we're still, we're still within the structures. We're still now, and now we become voices of rebelling against those norms, even when we still fit into them. And it's very funny. It's very, it's it's not in like a ha ha way. It's like an uh way. And we don't want that. Like that's not something we, have ascribed to it's just the way we fit within these systems and it's very hard to rebel against that because capitalism is so overpowering it's like we were talking about at the start and I don't want to be like oh it's just capitalism because I do think it's a deeper thing but it's it's that idea of like whatever what what we do we can fight as much as we want but we'll still be ascribed certain roles and norms and probably fit into manners of speaking it's like my boyfriend the other day was telling me about you know the way I talk on Instagram like I speak in influencer speak if I'm frank with you like because of the platform and the way it shapes the voices that you use on it I, I do speak in that very like influency conversational tone. I slip into that lexicon very easily. And I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm an influencer because per se, but I definitely know how, what comes across on that platform best and how to converse on that platform and what will push up my content, as I put it, that I'm sharing on that platform. So it's like, even when I want to talk about the system, I'm still engaging in the system to get my um, words out there. And so it, it, it's, it's really difficult 
but I think the answer is really sitting down and doing that thinking and being like, you know what? Sometimes my intention will, you know, do I divest from Instagram altogether? Do I divest from Twitter altogether? But or will do I accept that sometimes my intention will be misconstrued whatever happens and like I'm operating with a system where it's like I throw as much of the wall as I can and you know some of it will punch through the wall and some of it will just stick to the wall and become a print that sells on IM5 which I love to buy my bed sheets from <laughs> it's that it's that kind of idea what you just said then was really powerful really clever actually about how we're giving the grace and the room to fail and then still fit within the beauty standards, still fit within the structures, which is why often it's interesting to talk about this. I try not to talk about my relationship with fitness or even my body anymore because I'm so straight. So I'm slim and I'm white and I'm conventionally attractive, as you outlined. I mean, I'm, I hate saying that because mm. it sounds like I'm being like, I'm fucking hot. I don't mean that. You know what I mean? Structurally. Um, but yeah, the reason I don't like talking about it, but, but this is why it's so interesting talking about it from an addiction frame point, because I think that that, that is kind of like, anyone no matter who you are you can have an addiction but I'm, I wasn't marginalized I'm never marginalized for my body so talking about that grace to fail is such a good way of explaining this space and why it kind of made me feel a bit icky about having me talking about this I'm like oh my god that's that's such a perfect way of saying it it's like not only am I allowed to go through this I'm allowed to fail and then carry on I don't know I just think you put that so well and it kind of made me um just made me recognize my privilege once again, mid convo. <laughs> <laughs> it is just, it's just a constant, it's just a constant aspect. But it's, it's something that I'm having to grapple with as well because I've never thought of myself as like being outside the norms in any shape or form because I'm very aware of, you know, who I am, why I, you know, we talked about earlier how. I, a lot of people are reading the things I'm doing right now. And it's also because I fit within certain molds and people like seeing, you know, a young, and I will say attractive, like young, attractive, conventionally attractive. Um, as you say, straight sized. Um, I'm, you know, I pretty much identify as this at the moment. I want to think outside of that, but I can't like go away from that. Like I basically straight, uh, woman who is also a person of color. Like I fit every, like, I fit just enough outside like the palatable frame, but then I'm totally palatable. I'm totally allowed in. Like I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sort of like the Venn. I'm the Venn diagram of like, you know, a broadcaster's wet dream. It's why they always get mixed race people on to talk about issues that affect um, non-mixed race people. Uh, it's, it's like, why, mm. why, why are you getting us on to try and talk about like what's affecting dark skinned black women? Because we are almost the bridge um, that's just spicy enough, but not too spicy. Uh, so it's, it's, it's something I'm always trying to grapple with, but it is, it's something that's come up a lot recently because I've been talking a lot about the influence of culture. And as I said, so, you know, my boyfriend's like, well, you know, you've done a, like a lot of like influencer-esque stuff. And I was always like, I actually cried talking to us. I'm not an influencer. I'm not doing that. And he was like, look at your feed. Like, look at the stuff you post. Um, look at, like, have, have, you do need some self-reflection. It's like in the past, I have definitely engaged, when I was working at a lifestyle magazine, I used to post stuff like, it wouldn't be ads, but it would be like, people would send me free shit. And I'd sometimes be like, this is a really good product. I love it. And like just automatically slipping into that vein and doing those things. So it's 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 not that we have to do the whole communist stand up and do the confess my sins, self-flagellation, but it is a constant process of recognizing how we engage within the systems and how, you know, it puts it, it's, the whole thing is to put us in the box of consuming, creating a uh, constant flow of that. And um, whether we like it or not, you know, these, 
the certain voices we do get promoted to a platform because of who we are and because you know it's hard to break that cycle it's really hard to break that cycle it doesn't mean we have to shut up and stop creating and stop you know talking and stop allowing our views to air but it it just does mean that we have to try maybe even that little bit harder to make sure that the other people are getting up there with us and extending that hand and being aware Mm. of when we don't need to take up that space and also sometimes just like I'm trying to log off more not because I'm like People don't need to hear what I have to say, even though they don't. It's because for my own peace of mind, it's learning I don't have to share everything. It's learning. It's it's weird saying this on mm. a podcast where I've confessed a lot of stuff that I've only just started even thinking about or confronting, but um, privacy. <laughs> privacy and like those boundaries of privacy and what the internet needs to know and what it doesn't need to know and what people need to know. And, you know, I I, ch- I do pick and choose very carefully what I'm saying to people. And I'm, I'm saying this to you because I, I think this is a really good space for it. Um, but it's it's interesting. It's like I've I've got to wean myself off the internet and that internet addiction. I have got like an alt, a secret account that's not so secret now, Twitter account where I just have like mm. my closest, closest friends. And it's almost like a group chat. And that's why I've now started putting all my like farted out thoughts and silly other things because it makes you question the process of even doing that. And then when you're questioning, you know, should this go on main Twitter? And then you question, does this even need to go on Twitter at all? Maybe not. Maybe I could just sit back and not put this mm-hmm. on this platform. And I, I I've, you know, I've ta- I've, my output on Instagram has really gone down. I still post the odd selfie because I love it. But it's really, my relationship has changed. It's basically just work and a couple of odd pictures. And then it's like I've got, I just don't enjoy that platform in the same way anymore because it's not as fulfilling. And I do, I think the pandemic as well as really as you say it's that overconsumption that's been through the pandemic but it's like god being outside is just so nice (laughs) Mm. oh my god it's so interesting um especially talking about like privacy and versus thank first of all thank you for sharing with me I I love talking to you but I think that there's such a big difference between people say to me god you share so much online I'm like I actually don't I'm really open I don't want to say vulnerable because I don't feel vulnerable in what I'm sharing because I'm very and also calculus is not the word it's deliberate what I'm talking about I'm happy to talk about I'll talk about certain things too with I talk about my periods or like it's it's personal but it's what I want to share and it's interesting because I've got really good now at not sharing what people ask me to so I have the privacy in the sense that people ask me things I'm just like I don't owe you the answer to this question but then I might talk about something which they deem to be way more personal so it's interesting that kind of like private public it makes me think going back to uni again talking about like a room of one's own and like the Victorian times the blending of the personal and the public but it is really interesting it always comes back to those same kind of conversations about like what's happening behind closed doors and what's happening in the public sphere and in a weird way, the really personal stuff to me, like the stuff that used to be very private, mental health, sex, periods, all those things, they're what I talk about. And the things that I keep private are like what I do on the weekend, how I spend my downtime, you know, what I do with my boyfriend or like the conversations I have with my friends. That's my really private because that's my personal public. <laughs> and then you have like your internet public, which is like a different thing. I don't know. It's very, it's a really interesting dichotomy to think about because it has it has really changed and the scope of what we deem to be acceptable common parlance, common conversation has also changed tenfold in the last like five to 10 years. So I think that private public concept is really, really interesting. Like when we look at social media and what we deem to be personal and what we deem to be private, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. I mean, it's, what's really interesting about what you said there is how, 
what things like sex and periods is now you know that's internet public that's something that you may not necessarily talk about it as openly at like if you're invited to a random dinner um with you know in a professional setting but I'd be more likely to talk about that than some other things because I think this has a lot to do with actually the commodification of feminism and the lexicon <laughs> that we talk in about it and how that is you know talking about sex is like it's easy now. It's fine. It's like, yeah, I come. That's radical. Uh, so it's like those those things. It's like, you know, you have all these like eco-friendly, sustainable women's period places. And it's all, all about that kind of thing. And it's like, it's actually, yeah, talking about this online is a really cool, radical thing to do. And that's feminism. And that now means that it's, it's the trickle-down effect. It's like, this, I always talk about like the cerulean blue jumper and the devil wears Prada, you know, something starts from like this <laughs> radical place in perhaps, you know, the 20th century. So you have that radical feminist politic. And then as as neoliberalism starts, capitalism starts, there's this commodification of everything around us so that's geared up really in a huge way in the social media where everything became content and everything became something to be consumed. Then you have like this, the feminism at the same time as like this big movement but then it became gobbled up and it's like talking about as a woman online talking like do you, like men talking about sex online I think would get a very different reception and it's not that it'd be shamed it'd just be it'd see a lot more dirty I think unless they were a queer man because queer men now talking about sex is radical um which you know that's that's different politics but it's like it's interesting as women talk about sex online that's still like very seen as like wow, that's really like totally normal and liberating. It's like you can write a whole book about it and sell it to the masses talking about sex and periods. So it, it, it is interesting. And I think when we talk about the internet public, what I think about is the stuff that's safe to be consumed. And when you talk about like your personal, personal stuff, like, you know, going on the walks and spending time with your loved ones, that for me is something that I have to keep close to me because otherwise I feel like I'm cheapening it because I know when I put stuff out there in a way, it's almost fodder for that commodification and that consumption and I know that whether I intend that or not that will happen I really live by that idea that when you put things online no matter how unfiltered how vulnerable you think you're being there is always some element of putting it online like you are you if you wanted a picture to be private for memory you would print it out mm. and put it in a drawer every time you put something online it's with the knowledge it's going to be seen so some even if it's a tiny percentage some percentages of authenticity dissipates when you go online no apps like a hundred percent it's this is i'm reading a really interesting well, i read a really interesting book on instagram itself and it's um evolution which i recommend it's called no filter and it's by sarah sarah freer um and it's all about how instagram grew to what it was and you know from the very beginning it was based on this these spheres of influence and they signed celebrities up very early. There's a really cute story about Ariana Grande in it actually, which I recommend everyone to read to look out for. But it's Instagram, yeah, Instagram, once people realise its marketing purposes, it it's almost like it couldn't be anything else. And this is the problem. It's like much as we want to divest from the, you know, forge our own path and we might be posting, as you say, completely with our own intentions, you know, want to be unfaltered and raw, but because you know, we're so versed in this this platform and the structure and the it, it forces us into something else, whether we like it or not. And it's like, you know, you, mm. when you get people messaging you about wanting to consume parts of yourself on that platform, it doesn't matter. It will always make you feel a bit cheapened by it. Because if you're, it doesn't matter what your intention is because of what the platform is, that is how it's going to be received now. It's very hard to get away from that. And also once you're disillusioned with it, it's also hard to reinvest that emotional uh, connection in it that you might have once had 
So the communities that you built and that joy you got from it, it's it's difficult now. These these platforms feel fatiguing. Like I I I love it when people, you know, I like mm. no, I don't love it actually. I like it when people message me and I appreciate it, but it also feels really tiring because I can't give them what I want to give them just over an Instagram DM or a Twitter DM. I I have like if I'm mm-hmm. gonna work with you or do something with you, I can do that in a different sphere, but the conversation you know people will message me off the back of a tweet and be start like a conversation that they want to have like this in-depth conversation and I totally appreciate that but I don't have I just don't have the energy to do it anymore because it's it's not somewhere that I think can actually start I think it's a conversation like as we say we tweet and it's it's it exists in its own little vacuum and if I'm gonna have a conversation I want to be having it Mm. elsewhere and it's not the fault of the people who message me I should I should know better than to just be tweeting not expecting any responses but I just can't give them what they want and I feel so like disappointed and guilty myself not having the ability to like want to message back about uh you know the media structures um because even if I've tweeted about them because I'm just like I don't have it in me right now to do that do you know one thing that, and I don't know if you use it, but I remember, it, and maybe it's a helpful tool for some people, but one thing that really made me feel a bit sick and like disenfranchised from platforms was when that app called Blinkist came about that basically gave you like a, um, a synopsis and summary and like chapter breakdown of like any book that you could ever read. And I was like, this is obscene like this is obscene because I first of all love reading books I don't understand people that say oh I've, I pick and read bits I'm like what happens if halfway through they're like oh my god I loved Hitler and you didn't know and then you were like I love this book I don't know I have to read things cover to cover even if I hate it I want to know what happens but um I just find it I found it interesting that we were doing everything sort of it became for content so before what it was is we had an idea we had a concept and we wanted to share it and the content was the result whereas now the content is the goal so you kind of work backwards from the content if that makes sense and so everything is kind of like we know what we have to achieve and it's like when you first go to uni and you write an essay and you come up with all these ideas and then you google things to back up the idea that you've already said so you haven't actually researched anything you've just found a line in an essay and been like and as we see here and there's actually no real depth to it. Like that's what Instagram and social media and everything has kind of become. I feel like before it was really full of like real genuine new thoughts and ideas and communication and like, wow. And now it's sort of like, right, I know what I want to be saying. How can I back this up in the like the quickest, snappiest way possible? It's not to say there's anything wrong with that. And maybe that's really um, ableist of me to talk about like reading whole books and those things are probably really helpful for research and whatever. I mean, when they're used cynically and when they become part of this machine of sort of, um, smoke and mirrors I guess that's when I start to feel like with the platform as you say that real sense of fatigue and like I actually have started posting way more meaningless shit because I'm like there's no point in me I love doing it on the podcast I have the room to talk it's like the best thing ever but on Instagram there's probably no point in me writing a really lengthy caption that I spent hours writing because fundamentally it's just gonna get swallowed up and eat and spit out and like no one's gonna see it and do you know it's just it just it is exhausting as a platform I would say for deep stuff it's funny you mentioned Blinkist because that is something that lives in my mind rent-free <laughs> and I always think about it as the sort of archetypal late stage capitalism rise and grind hustle 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 get this book read in 15 minutes and I I, I mean I I can't comment whether it's able or not but I think there's you know plenty there's audio books there's other like so many other forms of things and Blinkist was not designed to be something that was and it might be useful to that community, the disabled community, but it wasn't designed as that. It was designed to make, it was designed and promoted as hustle culture. It was designed and promoted as something that to make um, the the consumption of knowledge quicker without actually doing the in-depth and the context and the 
the full sort of like understanding of this the topic um so yeah blinkers blinkers is something that i really do think is indicative of this approach as you say logging on with these entrenched positions to back it up and rather than coming in with an open mind or at least a curious mind i think a curious mind is one of the best things we can have right now but it takes time to unlearn not being curious i don't think i've been curious like i i, I remember being yeah. very curious when i was maybe 18 19 and then you know, something happened, I got very online, I got entrenched, I got very entrenched. And it's only recently mm. in the last like year or so that I've started being curious again and started wanting to have my mind changed in a way. And I'm not talking about the things like, as we said, like I'm not talking about abhorrent views or things that I fundamentally know against my principles, but I'm talking about just changing the way I think about things and changing the way I think about the way the world works 100% and understanding more about the systems behind that rather than just going like, oh yeah, it's because of capitalism and tailing off because I don't know exactly how mm. that system is going. And I it's it's interesting. I wonder how do you how did you used to feel when you wrote your like big long captions versus how have you felt recently? Do you do you like writing the captions itself or does that feel like a chore? So I love writing my book reviews. I find it really fun. And I think it's like a good, it's quite hard to do a book review in like a small space of time. So that, I find that fun as a genuine exercise of my own, like, how can I strap, fit this into this and make it make sense and make people excited to read? Because I love reading and I find that I'm like, that's part of my Instagram that I feel really proud of. I'm like, I want people to read. I want it to be cool. I like the fact that I'm sharing something that isn't about me. My Instagram is my work platform and I share what I'm wearing and it is quite capitalist in that it's how I make a lot of my income um, and it gives me the room to read, research, think about what I want to write, think about doing my comedy. It kind of, now it gives me the space to do the arts that I really want to be doing. So I don't really write as many long captions and when I do, I get really excited because I'm like, yay, I'm doing something helpful. But I also feel like it feels pointless because I feel like, it's not enough. As you say, like I used to, try, I tried to do a series, which actually was quite, it worked quite well, where I do Let's Talk About, and I did a really long Instagram TV video. And then I would get all of my audience to kind of reply. And I would stay online, literally on my page for three hours, replying to really, really long comments. That was fruitful because it wasn't just me putting something out into ether and then going, bye. But again, Instagram's not quite the right platform to facilitate it. Like it's me being online in focus like in comments of three hours isn't actually like the best use of my time, which is why I love my book clubs because we would have like these kind of conversations we're having now with a group of 20 women for three hours in real life. And that's what I love. So I do like writing a caption, but then I kind of feel like the next day, a bit like I was saying with the Britney Spears documentary, like you could say something you think is interesting, but really you need to be talking about something for weeks or months. Like it needs to be like investigative journalism for it to really come out with any kind of fruitful ending. So I guess um, sometimes I do write them, but I I feel deflated, I guess. I, th I think what you've come up against is the limitations of something like Instagram. And the thing about these platforms is, and it's really great that you, and I was going to mention your book club because I was like, this is quite clearly, that's also why like you had those spaces outside externally because you are someone who enjoys having that conversation, that in-depth space and building that with people around you. Obviously someone who likes connection and having those connections with other people and hearing from them. But Instagram is a very one-sided thing. It's like you have a lot of followers who often, are, you know, in a position of quite idolizing you as well. Um, and I speak as, you know, a former mm. a former follower who didn't know you. It's like, you, I, I respected what you're saying online. I was like, oh, this girl seems really nice and interesting. Um, but you like, you have a, they have a parasocial relationship with you. So it's, it's, I was going to talk about that, but it's also, 
it's like you, you you think that these platforms will make it better, but it's it's you've got like Clubhouse, but I find that that's almost worse than <laughs> than what we're experiencing now because it's this it's this it's it, I thought that Clubhouse would be like a really great platform full of potential, but it's just like Twitter on crack. It's like Twitter just times ten, where everyone's just yelling at each other and the same conversations are happening again and again and again. And the thing about all of these platforms is they are ephemeral. Um, they're not going to be here in X amount of years. And that's also what I meant when I said it's great you're building outside because, you know, you've got your comedy, you've got these spaces, you've got like a goal that doesn't, that won't solely rest on Instagram. And Instagram, we don't know how the longevity it has. We don't know how Twitter's longevity is like. Remember Facebook? Do you remember how much time you spent on Facebook as a teenager? (laughs) How much time do you spend on Facebook now? Oh my God, I never go on it. It freaks me out. (laughs) Yeah, it's Facebook is Facebook now is is so um like it's a horrible design, but it's also it has nothing for us. We don't have our conversations on there, our social lives aren't there. I only maintain my Facebook profile in case I need to like talk to sources for a story or if you know someone from my past I need to reach out to you for some unknown reason. But Facebook is no longer <laughs> a part of my social life and disillusionment the disillusionment i find with facebook is something that we will soon enough i think apply to instagram and twitter whether we realize it or not the same way we applied it to bebo the same way it was for myspace which was before my time the same way all these networks have lived and died because uh, we love to consume we love to have the new thing but it's also these places don't make us happy in the long run not at all now i, I love this i'm i'm just realize how we were talking I don't want to go on too long but I wanted I wanted to ask you about your third thing um because I think this is such an important one and also we could talk about this for about an hour but your third thing and I love that you said this is achievement myths and you put like meritocracy validation for being academic etc I think this is so important because I mean I'm I've just turned 27 fellow Pisces over here and um I'm having this like sense of crisis because I'm like, I'm never going to be on this Forbes 30 under 30 list. And like, I haven't written a book and I haven't done all of these things. And it's like, when did your twenties become this time for you to achieve things that people would dream about? Like when I was younger, I always used to want to be an author, but I would imagine myself as a 50 year old being an author who'd have written like some sci-fi fantasy book. And all of a sudden, these achievement, I mean, maybe I'm taking this slightly differently from you, but these myths of achievement to me are now like sort of, that you're going to be, we're luckily in happy relationships, but all these really ridiculous milestones that actually the older you get, you start to realize, shit, there is no kind of linear order in which this happens. And it may never happen either, it, you know, and and you kind of having your bubble burst at every step of the way. And it's, it can be really deflating. Tell me if I've interpreted that wrong. Is that what you meant? No, you've interpreted it very right. There was uh, there's so many levels to this. So the, the first of all, what we can talk a bit about that achievement myth, those age thing, the age aspect, which I think is so key. It's, and I do think this is again, funnily enough, linked to social media and the performance online and how we, you know, idealize very the younger you are now, the younger and shinier you are, then the more you get things opportunities thrown at you. So of course, that's just like a self perpetuating cycle where the people we see um, put promoted what's the word risen to prominence Mm. uh the people we see who've risen to prominence are going to be younger and younger and younger and it's that sort of self-cannibalizing thing where the media will latch on to like the next young thing and the next young thing and the cycle's even quicker and before you know it's every two weeks rather than every like two months or two years so yeah the, the age thing is a massive one because i it's funny 
when I was younger, my sister and I used to play a game. And that game would be this game where we imagined, um, one of us would suddenly go like, oh, oh, wow, we're having a great time in London. And we'd, the other one would have to play along. It was a game of make-believe where you'd have to snap into being these two characters where we were pretending we were older. And my and we'd like be grown up. And I'd always be in London and I'd be writing. And I would never be past the age of 25. And I would always have everything figured out by the age of 25. Funnily enough, we were never married in these scenarios because I come from a single parent family where the idea of marriage was like, what, why? So we, we were very much like, I'm at university and I've written a book. And I've got a boyfriend and we're going to a party tonight. So, <laughs> so, so when I've now I've actually reached 25, it's, it's almost like, I, I don't know. My mum did things later in life, which is, she, I mean, she did all her like, university when she was like in her twenties, but she didn't have me and my sister until she was about in her forties. She became, she got her doctorate in her forties. So I also did have that model there of like, you don't have to do everything when you're young. And I'm just, I, I'm very aware of how much life there is to live. And I do see, I do, I am very worried by, particularly for young women, because it's always young women who have these myths thrown at us about youth in the first place and like this ageism. And online, I get so many like young journalists telling me how, you know, worried they are, they're never going to make it. And they're like 19, 19. And I don't want to be, you know, have anything figured out until I'm at least like, even what I want to do till I'm 35. I don't want to even mm. be in journalism, I don't think, beyond maybe 35. I want to do several things. I want to like live out there. So that's one of the achievements I was talking about. The other one's in like the terms of meritocracy. That for me is things like thinking, you know, when you're taught you're young, if you work hard and you can achieve anything you want, it's just absolute bollocks. Mm. Um, and you know, people, people like me who come from that solid middle-class background and have, you know, had a lot of luck. I didn't, I'm, I didn't have hookups. I didn't have any like family nepotism or anything like that, apart from when I worked at Urban Outfitters, because my cousin was the manager of that. But I didn't, in the media, I didn't have any hookups, <laughs> only for the 40% Urban Outfitters discount. But <laughs> it's, it's like the, the nep I haven't had nepotism, but I've been very lucky in, and I've had, you know, when I was, when I was like properly, properly broke, my family didn't have what I would call like money, money, but just enough to like make sure that I, they could send me like a hundred quid if I was really broke. And that is, you know, I, I was, I always knew I was going to go to university. I always knew I was going to do this thing. So I've had that sort of like, I've had a comfortable path. I've always had a safety net and other people who don't have those safety nets. It's not a meritocracy. There's a reason that, for example, black women are likely to be the lowest paid across all industries. We know about, we know that inequality is both it intersects in the way it's racial, it's geographic. These things all come together. Um, you know, there's, there's a reason that ethnic minorities in this country, I think it's, um, if you're black in general, you pay up to 10 times less than a white person doing the same role we don't live in a meritocracy and the fact that we even the fact that we peddle that myth is dangerous for two reasons one you know it obscures the the real root cause of inequality which is discrimination and lack of investment and it it creates a myth where people who are successful don't want to talk about the reasons they might be successful that might not be just mm. due to their hard work it's like i've worked very hard but i also have other things in place and from very young you you don't want to undermine your own abilities by doing that if you're taught this meritocracy myth and it starts in all, all the way in school it starts with you know when you're sorted into sets and somebody who might be you know we had kids in the bottom set who were very smart and bright but weren't academically bright they couldn't you mm. know they might have the Sometimes they had learning difficulties. Sometimes it was just the academic structures of school did not suit their way they learned. It didn't feed them. It wasn't nourishing for them. And it didn't, and they were looked upon as like 
the least able. And that affects every other opportunity you're offered from then on. You're, once you're sorted into these mindsets of like, if you're not academically bright or you're not suited to the academic um, system in the UK, which is very much sort of like regurgitating facts, it's having a lot of like surface level knowledge, um, you it, it, mm. you know, that's that sticks in your record. And because we've taken away a lot of like apprenticeships and traineeships, the vocational careers are not seen as good. And because we've marked like education higher education is now seen as both a necessity and it's seen as a you know marketization of a higher education whereas you know university is seen as a business rather than you learn for learning's sake you mm. have to pay a lot of money to go there you get into a lot of debt it's immediately setting up these people to fail and not live lives where they can either learn in adulthood or they can just go and do things that aren't to do with like memorizing you know french verbs uh, it's it's so unfair but and i i was infected with that sort of like academic um, because I was I was always very academic. I'd come. I, my mum was before she was a yoga teacher. Which, when this was before yoga teaching was very cool. So she was just teaching yoga to old ladies in our rural village. <laughs> but she was a lecturer. So she was a lecturer. So I, and my dad before he ran off was also a PhD student and a lecturer. So like I, I technically come from a background of academics, which I only recently realised. Oh, that's why you know I've been pushed course I've been pushed to be academic and of course I had a snobber about academics when I was young because I was told that was what was key and it's like it's not and having that snobbery is something you have to unlearn and it's really difficult because it 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 pushes in you an arrogance and uh, a disdain that is just so ugly so those are things I'd have loved to learn much younger about this myth of meritocracy and the achievements we talked about the age and like you know the pressure to achieve you know the idea of having a lifelong career is no longer uh and this is partly because of like the form of capitalism we're in late stage capitalism where jobs don't last as long we have all these forms of like new gig economies precarious employment is far more um prevalent so it's the idea of and also the idea of having to have more than one job in order to even afford the cost of living which makes no sense because the economy is a made-up thing by the government and they could they can control those rates if they wanted to but they just don't uh but yeah it, it speaks to that but it's also like we do have more choice and that's so freeing why on mm. earth would i want to do the same thing for my entire life if i didn't have to um and like I always think of, I know Trey Sales Ross is a very rich, lucky person who is the daughter of Diana Ross, but she's sort of like my idol in that sense and that she just goes and does whatever the fuck she wants. And she does do that because she's got money. But it's it's that idea of on the scale of, she. I don't know how old Tracy Ellis Ross is and I've never bothered looking it up because it just doesn't seem relevant. The same thing with Robin, even though she's a singer, but I've never bothered looking at Robin's age because it's just not relevant to the work she does to me at all. Mm. And I don't want to be on a 30 under 30 list because it doesn't feel relevant to the work I'm doing. It's like, I I, I think only like now, it's, it goes back to that point you were saying about like, when did your 20s become when you had to know everything and it was, you know, and you had to have everything figured out. And it's like, why on earth does someone trust me, a 25-year-old, to tell them what's what about the world? Why? I've only just begun living. I've, I've literally just begun going out into the world and realising how little I know. Why Why are you listening to me to like give you the lowdown? I can give you my opinion and I can give some analysis as I see it now, but that might be completely different in 10 years' time. And I, I think it's, it's it's having that room to like grow and change is such a luxury. And the fact that we like if we if we have that, we should, we should use it. God, I I can't wait to like do so many things. It's it's like I have dreams about stuff, I'll, projects I'll start, and things I'll do. I don't have a five year plan. I just have like vague goals of like okay, in the future I would love to start up some sort of um, 
I guess what you call like a bursary system, a, a, a program that allows children from deprived areas to go out and travel like the world and sort of like replacement for intraining mm. but fully funded and all of that and I have no idea how I could do that but that's what that's one of the things I want to do in my life it's like there's so many there's got nothing to do with journalism whatsoever at all uh so it's 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 funny because I do think that this also has a lot to do with like but at the same time it's like how do we how do we achieve those things without falling into like the hustle culture because I don't, I don't want to do that as like a performance mm. thing. I don't want to do that as part of hustle. I want to do that on my own terms. I don't want to be doing that because it's like, this is girl boss rise and grind. I just want to be doing that because it's an organic thing that will make me happy. And does that mean again divesting from the performance of doing that online? But yeah, this 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 whole like churning. Like I've I've been because of the recent opportunities I've been approached for. It's like someone I got asked, you know, do I want to by a literary agent? A literary agent approached me, and I was just like, I just don't. I don't need to write a book. I don't have anything in me to write about in that sense. Um, I've got nothing to say yet. And that's fine. That's that's really okay. And it's I think it's just more exciting to realise that there's just so much out there that you have yet to do. And it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be tied to this one thing. You don't have to be trapped in this thing forever because you are so young and you're just starting to figure it out. I had the exact same experience where I had a literary agent come to me and I was like, no, I'm not ready. And they kept pestering me and I was like, shit, I've got to do it. And then I, someone else came to me and I was like half writing it. And then I basically had like a breakdown. I was like, I don't want to be writing a book. I'm not ready. I don't feel, and thank fuck I didn't as well because the book I was going to be writing was like not my place. Now that I'm really glad that I didn't do it, but they, they knew it was sellable off the back of the podcast. They knew that like I would get the audience, people would buy it, but it's like, I, I only I keep making really stupid trite jokes about turning 27 and how I feel old but really how I feel is I woke up on my 27th birthday and I cried because I was so happy because I've never felt so weirdly in the middle of this everything that's going on I've had some really difficult things happen during this pandemic but I'm so in love with my boyfriend I've been going to therapy my friendships are all really strong I've had a stable income throughout this pandemic and I suddenly start, I think I know who I am a bit more and I woke up and I cried because I was so happy because I was like, this is who you are. And I was like, that's only starting to happen now. Mm. And like I'm 27 and I even, I still don't fully know, mm. but I feel like, I, I think I know about hundred percent for certain 20% of me, I'm like hundred percent sure about. And the rest of it I'll figure out by the time I'm 70. Do you know what that made me well up a little bit because that's that's also very similar to how I feel. But it's also it's that idea that when you catch on, to, I know how it feels when you catch on to how knowing yourself a little bit more, and like mm. for the first time in years, you think I have a bit of a root. This is this is the root to who I am now. Like I'm, it's it's. I think a lot of the difficulty and you know this pandemic again. Like I think like you, I've had a lot of difficult things happen and therapy's been hard, but it's been ultimately it's been so like I've been so lucky to come out of it with a much better understanding of who I am what what I want like not in the terms of like I want this career I want the next career but just like the vague sort of like I want this to be happy I want to do this I want to be with this person I want to do xyz it's it's like having that just makes your it makes life bright again I think for so long I was I was very unhappy. Mm. I was very unhappy and I was walking around with those pressures and those like ideas of like achievement, but also just like not knowing who I was. And the idea of who I was was the person I was at 21. And I'd been holding on to that idea of that's who I was and that's how I went about things and that's how I operated through life. And that's, you know, that's Moya, the 21-year-old who likes like, you know, this kind of partying and this what makes her happy and that what makes her happy. And mm. I'm reaching 26 and I realized 
that is not me. And the, the this separation and the distance between those two people had been making me so unhappy because I was looking for that happiness in all the wrong places because I'd completely developed and changed without realizing it. And it was again that absolutism. That's you know, I'm I'm this type of personality. I'm uh, I'm a Pisces and I'm an INFP. And it's like every time I take that fucking Myers Briggs test, it actually tells you some difference, and I just ignore it completely because it's actually made up pseudoscience. It's, <laughs> it's, there's a book about it. It's created. It's created by these two. It was created by these two eugenicist women in America who had no actual scientific training, um, oh. but it's used by so many people. Um, but yeah, so it's it's that idea. And it's that rubbing up of those two personalities and coming to terms with that you've changed and when you find you know, like that waking up and crying on your birthday just because you feel more at home in yourself than you have in years is something that's so wonderful and relatable so yeah that, that made me a bit emotional we've been really disparaging about the internet and social media on this podcast however it is where we both reside and so if people did want to find you or get to know you a bit more or follow your work where should we be looking for you uh, I feel really bad. Doing, I don't know if I even can actually do this because the last time I did this, my boyfriend said, the fact that you promoted your socials at the end just undermined everything you <gasps> said. So you know what? I'm just going to say Google my name if you want to find me. Um, I'm just going to say either Google my name or go on Galdem and read some of the stuff on there, but I'm not going to promote my socials for once. Really? But why does but it undermine? I will undermine- promote this podcast on my socials. <laughs> <laughs> I think I love the sound of your boyfriend, but I think he's mean. I think you're allowed to put your socials um, on here. Also, your Twitter is very much like a workspace. Like for journalists, especially, Twitter is like a hub of information, I think. I think it is. and But I also know that, I guess, if I'm really serious about trying to build up, you know, this this a following just for the sake of the following that's not just on my platforms because as we talked about I do think that Twitter and Instagram and all of that is ephemeral and you know where will I be in 10 years if you know apart from when I quit journalism but where will I be if the people are only coming to my socials and then I once I disappear from my socials am I am I just dead to the world will people still Mm. look for the work I'm doing outside of that Uh, so I guess the best place to start to try and um encourage in uh if if, if maybe a following that's seeks things outside of those platforms is any it's a good day to do it it's a good day to do it so I'm just gonna say google my name if you're interested in reading more of my work um and I'm sure you'll find my socials through that but there's there's stuff out there and you never know you could dig up all the old articles my mum doesn't want anyone to see like the ones they wrote about when I took pictures of kebab people like kebab men when I was drunk and got a load of papers (laughs) so you can find that instead instead of my like political analysis (laughs) that's amazing well thank you so much for joining me I think this is going to be the longest episode this season but by far one of my favorites I've absolutely adored chatting to you and I'm so pleased that you agreed to come on thank you so so much for having me it's been a pleasure it's been an extra therapy session and yeah I I got even more out of it than I expected and I expected a lot so it's it's been a real joy oh that's good well thank you everyone for listening as well and I will see you next week bye even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.